As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. The beginning to one of the most iconic C.S. Lewis books, The Voyage of the Non Treader. And that book is the topic of our conversation today. It's a book that we love. So I'm sitting with Ian, Mitch, and Lee. And we were a part of a book discussion because Lee is having the Memorial Press staff read the, the Chronicles of Narnia. We've already talked about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Magician's Nephew. But today's topic of conversation is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. However, before we get there, can I ask you guys what you've been reading recently? Ian? Sure. Yeah. So I've been working through Don Quixote, uh, which has been great. It's been fun. I was in a book club meeting where I confessed that I hadn't been reading it and got, uh, you know, chastised. That's and tough so when I'm you show up to a book club and <laughs> the, you haven't read the that's book. That's right. We've that's all right. been there. Oh yeah. no, I say go, just go anyway. It doesn't matter. You'll learn something. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been reading through Don Quixote. Um, another fun one that I've picked up periodically is The Master and Margarita by a Russian author, Russian novelist named Bulgakov that is outlandish and great. And, uh, also working on a project for school. And so I've been reading some, uh, some origin the church father origin with an E N, not an I N, not the origins of things. So it's been fun. Yeah. Been working through that. Sounds very Ian. Church fathers and Russian literature. Yeah. Well, you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, what have you been reading recently? Uh, just finished uh, the last book in the Winnie the Pooh series. You know, I think yes. you've already, you've, you've mentioned that you've read <laughs> but there's Winnie four, the Pooh there's on this podcast books. before. <laughs> there's five of them. It certainly can't be taking you that long. It has. <laughs> uh, it, it has taken a lot of, I mean, we've been really meditating on that. I mean, we'll read just mm. one, maybe one sentence and just stop and just sort of. You know how no, he deals kidding. with Are products. you doing voices? That's the real we, trick we to ha- Winnie the Pooh. I, I have not been doing voices and it's really just my wife and I. We claim that we're reading them to our little child who's 20 months old, but she's, she's usually do something else. Uh, usually just for us. Uh, but it's been hard to find. So anyway, we just finished that and then reading um, in the middle of Laris, which is a Russian author, mm. which is apparently the uh, sort of um, Eastern response to The Name of the Rose written by Umberto Eco. And you're supposed to read The Name of the Rose first and then read Laris. And I didn't do that. So I'm reading Laris and then I'll go back and read Umberto Eco's book, uh, The Name of the Rose. So Nice. But the poo books are yeah. great. <laughs> uh, yeah, really good. Worth worth it. Right. Well, we'll stay on our, our trend of children's literature later. We'll come back to that. Okay. Lee, what have you been reading recently? Um, I'm reading through some of the Memoria, Cre- Memoria Press um, curriculum. We're reading uh, Lassie. Uh, Tanya and I um, are doing Lassie. Um, I was doing some Aristotle oh. with Dr. Scheffler oh. with the Memoria College program. Um, but on my own, I'm reading um, My Antonia by Willa Cather. And it's, uh, I'm just totally in love. It's beautiful. And probably one of the best lines in literature um, came to me in that book describing someone I um, love, which says, <laughs> describing this 11-year-old boy who who rushes to a crisis. He doesn't know what's happening. And it says, he rushed to the crisis with delight. He rushed to the unknown crisis with delight. And I said, I know someone like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know someone yeah. with the spirit of adventure like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So let me ask you a follow-up about Lassie. How do you do with devastating literature? 
do you like <laughs> to read sad books or do you, does it, that give you joy or? Um, so I know Tanya's <laughs> having a real struggle with Lassie. She, you know, has called and texted several times saying that she's just bawling over Lassie. Um, and so I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, to be honest, Lassie doesn't catch me that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, what about like- I mean, it, it is sad, but uh, stories that um, where women and children are in harm, mm. um, now those I, I don't tolerate very well. But Lassie, I can endure. I just think there's a lot of goodness in Lassie and I can overcome some of the sadness. <laughs> Since the last time we recorded an episode, I finished The Grapes of Wrath, which if you guys haven't read mm. it, The Grapes of Wrath is a very sad book by John Steinbeck. And it's got a very po- powerful and poignant final scene that Tanya has asked me about. Every every time I mentioned to her I was reading it, she's like, that final scene. Have you read it yet? <laughs> and and it is quite poignant, but I won't spoil it because it's that's yeah, really it's really something. And but then since then I've been in a little bit of a lull because I have this obsession with playing the game of chess that's really taken away, you know, my quality time that I need to be spending on good literature. <laughs> and I've been reading chess books, which is a thing, like chess books. Yeah. And uh, they have a twelve step program for that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there's a great game of chess in this book, Ian. There is I don't a know great if you game recall of chess. that. Yeah. Because it, it has to do with the great character of Reepicheep. And I know that we're gonna get to Reepicheep at some point, but before we get there. Leona, to come back to you. In our conversations as a discussion, you brought forward this thesis that the book Voyage on, on Treader is, is a illustration and a metaphor for classical education. Defend that thesis. Tell us how you arrived at that thesis and convince us of it. I, I do think that this is one of the books that I would suggest to anyone who's, who will read it contemplatively and think about all of the little details and how coherent they and persuasive they are. Um, and I think it's a great defense of classical Christian education because it does produce two, the classical Christian education, the worldview um, in a very coherent way, um, cohesive way, but then also alternate worldviews. Um, this is not my thesis. Uh, you know, you're very generous to give me a credit for this, but uh, I was really heavily influenced by Joseph Pierce and his book further up and further in, um, is just fantastic. And for all Narnia lovers out there, it's an absolute must. Um, but he, you know, he brings to light some of the, um, um, characteristics of, um, progressive ideology and just some of the opposing worldviews and introduced that idea to me. And so I just latched onto mm-hmm. it and throughout the entire book just was mining um, just the details to try to to try to um, follow that suggestion that I gleaned from this book here. And I do think, you know, I, I think this I think the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is really incredible apology for mm. classical Christian education if we're paying attention to it. Um, probably the best line in this book is that, um, you know, uh, all of these traits of Eustace, but then Eustace didn't read the right books mm. and it yeah. caused his, you know, his life's crisis. And so, you know, I think that that to me was kind of the starting point for thinking about this book in that way. So you mentioned Eustace. It seems like this idea of linking classical education to the Voyage of the Don Treader relies a lot on how you read Eustace. Do you think that's correct? And how, how, how should we see Eustace? Right. I think so. I mean, um, you know, Eustace is, uh, he's described as a very modern boy. <laughs> I mean, so that's, you know, yeah. that's sort of the first characteristic that we're given of him. And um, he just doesn't love, he doesn't like natural things. And throughout the book, um, you know, 
all, every single time Lewis talks about him, he talks about them in this very modern, progressive way. He um, only reads books for practical purposes. Um, he can't tolerate um, inconvenience or discomfort or uncertainty. Um, he drinks plumps vitaminized yeah. water. I mean, you know, he he doesn't he calls his parents by his first names just mm-hmm. proving that he, you know, really has low regard for tradition. Um and you know, as Joseph Pierce points out, you know, he he is he has this um personality because he was educated that mm-hmm. way. I mean, this is how he was raised. And so who he is is a product of his education. Um and so I think it's really interesting to see Eustace in all of the decisions that he makes and all of the language he uses and all of the traits that he possesses, and then also his transformation, and then also seeing Eustace in contrast, of course, to Reapy Cheap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Mitch, you're kind of a Eustace of sorts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why would how do you, you say that? <laughs> uh, with what respect? Yeah. <laughs> how do you, how I do don't you, know that I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> how do you read this character that, I think he's one of those characters that, that you love to hate. Right. And that's, it's part of what you like about Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But what do you, what is your relationship to Eustace and what do you think of Mm. his role in this novel? So you kind of really don't like him, um, obviously. I mean, because his name is Eustace for one. Um, His last name is Scrub. Scrub. Right. Right. Uh, But I think I learned to see Eustace like Edward does in Mm. this novel. Edmund. Edmund, sorry. Um, uh, Because at a certain point, um, you see that this person's bad, but it, what does Edmund say? He says, you know, you were just kind of a jerk, but I was a traitor. Yeah. Mm. It's a powerful and, and so uh, Eustace here, Mr. Scrub, uh, becomes a way of sort of um, us looking at ourselves and recognizing that actually there's probably pieces of, of dragonish things in us mm. that are uh, quite repulsive and, and, and quite bad. Mm. And so Eustace sort of becomes a mirror, or at least he did to me. Yeah. Um, um, as I was reading this book a little bit later in life, um, and yeah, see, I think he sort of help, he he becomes a a foil to yourself, but then you realize, oh, actually, I mm. I think there's a lot about him that actually is reflected in me, and probably is worse, mm. right? And probably all good characters are cause that sort of self reflection mm. to a certain certain extent. But I think Eustace is a great example. You know, you can it's kind of like, ah, at least I'm not like Eustace. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, then you're like, ah, well, maybe actually uh, there's a there's a lot of mm. pieces of me that look very much like that and perhaps yeah. worse at times. I think you see some of that with the journaling from that's the, right. from the perspective yeah. of Eustace. You you picked that that's up as what, well. That's you? what I was thinking as 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 Mitchell was talking about him that I think the way um Lewis does that throughout the book. You you really get an internal view of Eustace in that way, and you really realize that he's relatable. I mean, he's mm. he's a jerk, and you hate to relate to him, but you realize you do. You realize it in the same way that he, you know, often mentions things as if he knows what's going on. You mm-hmm. do the same thing. You often think you understand the world, and you don't. I mean, <laughs> the funny thing is how often he'll he'll mention things like you know when when they're suffering. Uh, without water on the sea and he's really thirsty mm-hmm. and and Lucy in her compassion gives him some water tells him oh, girls don't really need this much water mm. like <laughs> and, and Eustace says I had always thought that but it's nice to know that that's true you know and you realize like it's he's foolish but so are we mm. and so I think getting that internal view uh, from the journals is is great but you also see his transformation throughout uh, because in the journals, it's where he begins to take on some of the language mm. of Narnia. He he begins to know how the ship works, the mm. Dawn Treader, 
mm-hmm. the thing that's taking them on this journey. He, he begins to use the language that other, or, or he's able to explain some of the language by what he knows. So he's growing in wisdom mm-hmm. throughout. And I think that makes him and relatable. And then also this, you get a little glimpse of how painful it was for him to change, right? When he's yes. talking to Edmund, he says, you know, the the first, when Aslan said, ripping the dragon off him, right? Yeah. He's like, the first cut it was so deep, it, it felt like it was piercing my heart. Yeah. Right? And so you you begin to see, feel immensely sorry. I, I've felt that way before <laughs> when I've realized that, oh, I'm in a place where I, I need, I, I've made a huge error. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'm in desperate need. And so, I mean, I just remember reading that particular section and just kind of tearing up a little bit because I'd... I've been in that sort of a desperate situation mm-hmm. before, uh, and and the the fixing part of it fe- cuts hard. It right? does, um, yeah. and so there's a lot relatable. Even though he starts off as this otherized character, mm-hmm. you know, this silly kid and a dumb kid. <laughs> Lee recommended that I read the section on Voyage of the Treader from Joseph Pierce's book, Higher Up and Further In. Um, I believe further, that's up. further up, further up, further up, further up, further up, exact further opposite in. of what you said. <laughs> further up, it is from the last <laughs> battle. If you remember in. your chapter <laughs> headings <laughs> in, in said great book, um, Joseph Pierce pointed out that Edmund describes or Eustace describes the pain of the of the scales coming off as excruciating, mm-hmm. and he kind of does a, a false etymology back to <laughs> from out of the cross. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like really clever to, to yeah. connect. Um, yeah that out of the cross conversion moment, it clearly it's kind of allegorizing um, in, in that pinnacle. And that's the question I'd have for you guys. This book is a little different from some of the other novels in that it's not quite as cohesive in a narrative form as some of the other novels. And because of that, it seems like the climax happens earlier. Do you guys agree that the climax of this novel is the conversion of uses or do you think there's another climax somewhere else? Hmm. In thinking of this book as sort of a metaphor for classical classical Christian education. I mean, I think um, the journey itself is really the primary point of this. And I think, of course, the conversion of Eustace is one of the pinnacle things. But, um, you know, it could be argued that, um, you know, Reapy Cheap's uh, arrival uh, might, you know, be a climax. Um, But, you know, I think that the Dawn Treader itself, I mean, the book is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and I think that's not insignificant. I mean, I think, you know, when I'm thinking about a book, I think, why are these decisions made? Why is this the name of this book? Why is this, why is this the first sentence? Why is this the last sentence? I mean, you know, I really sort of push back on this idea that you read a book and you finish it and you think, you know, in very vague terms, what was that book about? Who are the main characters? And you just kind of Mm. have this very, um, cozy, mushy attitude about it. I think that it's the details that count and that really can give you solid information. And, you know, the Dawn Treader itself is this metaphor for classical education. I mean, it is the the vessel that is literally moving us forward. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, you can see the opposing worldviews about even this ship, um, you know, between Eustace and Lucy at the very beginning. I mean, Eustace says, oh, it's a rotten picture and it's relegated to this upstairs room. And Lucy just I mean, she just has a heart for it. I mean, she says, oh, it looks like the waves are really moving and, you know, look at the mast. And I mean, she just, and, 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 and she can really truly feel it. And it's as if she even imagines that ship into life because mm-hmm. she has a metaphysical idea of things. She has gratitude and wonder and imagination. Eustace, on the other hand, other hand has this materialistic, um, you know, 
attitude toward the world where this pragmatic, you know, mm. he basically explains away the wonder. Mm. And he does that throughout the entire book. Yep. Anything mm. that's miraculous or wonderful, anything that should be received with gratitude, he explains away, mm. um, you know, in a very materialistic way. And so I think that, you know, the ship and the and the ship's journey to all these different islands, I mean, to me, that's the point of mm. the book. It's sure. not, Eustace is a huge part of it. And I think Eustace is a great opportunity to consider um, you know, uh, the personification of a particular worldview. Um, but I think the ship itself is probably mm-hmm. the main character. I think, I think that's right. And I think that there are multiple journeys here. There's one journey, but then there are multiple journeys on that journey. And so I think the way I would answer your question is, is certainly that's the climax for Eustace because that's the, that's the moment of change. And then there is kind of a denouement for him. I mean, it's not like he, he comes up and does much else the rest of the time. He just changes and that's important. And I think that's part of the story. So I think it's at least the climax for Eustace, but really the story is the voyage of the Don Treader. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and beyond that, it's really, I think the, the crucial Narnian figures, Reepicheep. And his his voyage is more than the voyage of the Don Treader. And so the voyage of the Don Treader is this great symbol of 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 moving, of of journeying through life, of overcoming different adversities. You know, the 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 Don Treader itself goes through uh, rough circumstances. And by the time they get to one of the islands, it's a shipwreck and it needs to be brought back together. Um, and so there's just so much there that, that we that we can draw on about our own journeys and lives. But then uh, you know. Reepicheep says at the beginning that like my calling is to go to go further, to mm-hmm. go higher than that. And, you know, just to, to kind of recap with, with the Voyage of the Dawn Trader, you've got Caspian, his calling, mm-hmm. his journey is to find the lost seven lords. Mm-hmm. And, and Reepicheep's all on board with that. He's going to go do that. But then his journey is to try to get to Aslan's mm-hmm. country. And it's because when he was a young child, when he was a young mouse, I should say, mm-hmm. he was prophesied over you know, that you, you one day will find water that's sweet. You're in the utter East. And so mm-hmm. that's what he's going for. And so I think you're getting so many layers of journey metaphor in this, sure. that there are different climaxes for each uh, with, of course, Reepicheep being, I think at the end, Eustace being at the beginning and then really the voyage carrying on all the way. When you're writing a great fiction book, especially for kids, there's different ingredients you have to put yeah. in, the, in the soup. And one of them is like a prophecy over yes, one of the characters. Right. And, right. and I, I love that. Yeah. I, I think as a kid, I, 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 I really, I know I, I we talked about this before. But I, yes, you're a known critic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Was this your favorite book as a kid? As a kid, I just, I didn't really like this book very much because I felt like it lacked a sort of driving plot. I felt mm-hmm. like it didn't have, a, a, there was no dragon Excuse the pun. Uh, to to like overcome right and and the the main gist of the story if I were to describe it as a kid is like well I guess we got to find some guys <laughs> and uh, you know growing up and realizing that the story is actually I mean as I read it old as a uh, more mature reader. Uh, meaning just hadn't spent more time in the world recognizes that life is just a little more difficult. Uh, um, I I think I what actually brought me back to the story made me actually appreciate it more was realizing that each, each character is not, not necessarily overcoming things out there, but they're overcoming things in, in mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so each character, there's a movement to each character that uh, is important. And that's what the story is, is, is about. To, I mean, to your point, it's the, each character is coming to a, a greater sense of themselves. Um, 
it, something I just didn't see before because I was looking for this like very, story, the story, yeah. uh, and I didn't realize that. Well, the, the, there's there are multiple stories going on here. They're couched in one story, right? Mm. But there are multiple peoples that are they're trying to get to the end, become more better versions of themselves, and that's not necessarily a um, an easy an easy journey, right? Uh, and it's something that we can all relate to because we're all trying to. Uh, and sometimes we are ripped. We have to. We have to be ripped out uh, of our. Uh, you know, the the divine has to sort of step into our life and pull us out of the way. But mm-hmm. um, I just didn't sense that as a young reader. I think. Yeah. You know, we we gave you kind of a hard time yeah. for your criticism of this book. I'll be honest. Yes. We're a loving community, but yeah. we did. It's true. Yeah. We also <laughs> ripped into you. <laughs> but I, but let me let me let me concede a minute because yeah. I do think you're right at that you know with voyaging being the primary theme of this book and journeying and adventure as a child you are couched in security and mm. you are couched in comfort and you probably can't recognize mm. you know the significance of the journey and you can't empathize with some of the struggles of journey and you don't really you're not you know you're not called to sort of pick your north star and travel like That's you right. are as an adult yeah. and so i i'm going to I'm, I'm going to apologize. <laughs> oh, a beautiful moment captured on the wow. podcast. <laughs> because I do think, in retrospect, you can see, you can, you can maybe appreciate some of right. some of this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And you know, after reading the Odyssey and after you know reading Chesterton and knowing his great quote, you know, all you know, the Iliad mm-hmm. is great because all life is a battle, and the mm-hmm. Odyssey is great because all life is a journey, mm-hmm. and the yeah. Book of Job because all life is a riddle. And as you mature and you you know experience that as an adult, mm-hmm. I think you can have an appreciation for you know, just how brilliant mm. and well done this story is. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back. <laughs> I, it, it, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, <laughs> of, yeah, the, the pain that I felt. That's right. You, <laughs> it's the last time we discussed this book. Now you feel uh, fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it does speak to uh, needing to come back to these books um, at all ages. Mm. Right? right. You know, it, there is value to reading Narnia as a young reader, uh, but coming back to the book uh, as a slightly more mature reader, there's so much more that it can offer you. Um, you know, it really, the best of these novels are not just for children, right? They're not, fairy tales aren't for kids. Absolutely. No. In a sense, yeah. And Mitch and I had a professor in college who read the Space Trilogy every year. The only books Mm. that she read every year were all three of the Space Trilogy. And I think think Lewis has that effect on people. It causes them to come back to it over and over again. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. Martin Cawthron, um, like about 25 years ago, um, when Mrs. Lowe and Martin Cawthron were just feeding me everything (laughs) I needed to read for classical education, and they were just, you know, just really um, just filling an empty vessel. Um, Martin, (laughs) (laughs) Martin, um, they would give me all of these books, and um, Martin would say, and then you need to read Lewis every year for a brain bath. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. <laughs> so we've talked about Eustace kind of as the contrary figure, the the antagonist a little bit, but who is redeemed. There's a shining protagonist in this book, mm. and that's Reepicheep. And we talked about him a lot in our book discussion. Lee, what do you love about Reepicheep? Oh, I love Reepicheep. First of all, I think my favorite thing about Reepicheep is that Lewis cho- chooses a mouse mm. to be the exemplar of humanity. I just think that is so clever and j- just, you know, so witty. And, you know, I think it probably points to Aesop's fables mm. and, mm-hmm. you know, just a lot of what he knows in that, you know, the mouse saves the lion and that I think it kind of maybe, what do I know, but alludes to the fact that we all, 
have to do our part to serve our king. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Reapy Cheap, this tiny little creature is just, um, I mean, he's, he's just represents what is good and noble and virtuous. And, um, you know, I just think that he, he, he gives us in this tiny little character, um, he, he inspires us mm-hmm. to, to, to be better, to fight the battles, to, you know, one of my favorite quotes of Reapy Cheap, he, they say, well, what's the point of going into this dark sea? And he says, and I mean, I, you, can just, you, know, you can just, I mean, I just, you know, you, you can just yeah. see him stomping <laughs> on the ground and saying, if this is about filling your purses or filling your bellies, there's no point at all. You know, <laughs> he says, this is about adventure, you know, yeah, and, right. and it just, and, and it inspires you to, to just sort of put away the material things. And it's really hard to do. And I appreciate that mm-hmm. perspective in this world of modern mm-hmm. convenience and modern comfort. And we're just getting increasingly used to, you know, just um, avoiding anything that is not exactly the way we want it to be. And I think Reapy Cheap just kind of pushes me out of this modern mentality in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mitch, thoughts on Reapy Cheap? <laughs> My favorite part about <laughs> Reapy Cheap is uh, he's always itching for a fight, but <laughs> and not necessarily always for his own glory, but to defend the Arnia, honor of Narnia, to defend Aslan in some way. Um, but then his sort of coming, the sort of fullness of his story is he realizes that he has to put the sword down. Mm. Uh, and so there's this fight like mentality that it, I think in order to be a good husband or a good mother or, or a good employee or a good father or mother, I mean, you have to have that sort of fighting mentality, right? right? You have to, you have to sort of take up arms against a sea of trouble, uh, but by opposing them, hopefully to destroy them. And, um, and so there's a bit of that that I love about, mm-hmm. about him as a character, but then there's also this, uh, realizing that there's a, there's a certain piece of the fight that you yourself cannot, you, you can't bring about the victory, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's a certain sense where you fight, you fight, you fight, and then you put the sword down and you leave the rest um, to, uh, to to the Lord. Um, and so there's there's something to that sort of heartbeat that I think mm-hmm. we that uh, I've always been captivated by. And in a lot of senses, I, I want to emulate that. I want to be fighting mad to be <laughs> to be a certain type of father, yeah. uh, to be a certain type of employee, to be a certain type of, I mean, all the various roles that, that you right. might have in life, right? Yeah, I think Reaper Cheap, um, again, I just love in this particular book that he is kind of the, all of what we've said, I think is, is, is really summed up by, by his story in this, that he's the one that from the beginning is prophesied over that you'll get, you know, you got to search for Aslan's country. And he's the one at the end who does. And he has that beautiful line with the sword. I shall need this no more. And he (laughs) throws it into the waves and it just sticks there, you know? And what you see in reap a cheap is a life that's lived with one purpose in mind, you know, to glorify God, to find Aslan's country, to, to be the kind of person that gets to Aslan's country. And you see it, you see it all. You see him from the cradle to essentially the grave <laughs> going on this one focused journey. And so that's the call for us. And that that's the inspiration to me to be, to be like reap a cheap, you know, you, you were a child, now that you're a man, continue on. And, and as you're searching for Aslan's country, you know, there will come a time when the, the Dawn Trader will stop and you'll have to go off in your little boat. And at some point your little boat's going to stop and you're going to have to swim yourself. And even if you don't make it, you'll swim with your face facing towards the east with your <laughs> nose up looking for Aslan's country. I mean, that, that to me is just the most inspiring 
inspiring thing. So I, what I see in Reba Cheap, especially in this, is out of all the characters, he's the one that Lewis chooses to show, here's, here's how a whole life is lived. Mm. Here's the kind of person to be your entire life. And then you get to see how each of these individual characters are working that out yep. in themselves. Right. Something else about Reby Cheap that is important and something about literature in general that is important is that you can have these exemplars. I mean, you mm. can have, you know, goodness that doesn't exist in reality and you yeah. can have evil that doesn't really exist in reality. Mm-hmm. And so you can get the extremes through, you know, the characters in in a fictional work. And Reapy Cheap, you know, once you read a lot of Lewis, you can see a lot of his adult work in Narnia. And you can say, oh, I remember that passage from this and this. But Reapy Cheap reminds me of um, an essay in Lewis's uh, Present Concerns uh, book. It's his journalistic essays, and it's called um, The Necessity of Chivalry, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, you know, when I was reading about Reapy Cheap, it, you know, it immediately— um, brought me back to that essay, which Lewis is defending the knight. And he's saying that, you know, the knight is a perfect gentleman. Um, he's meek and mild and, and um, you know, has perfect civility in the dining hall. And he's, you know, a valiant warrior, mm-hmm. as you were talking about on the battlefield. And, you know, and Lewis says, what we, we are not seeking just a murky middle of the two. We're not seeking right. the, the the ideal is not an average of these two things. It is civility mm-hmm. to the nth degree, and it is valor to the nth degree. Right. And that's what you get in Reapy Cheap. Right. You get those two extremes in a single character, and you know that's what literature can do for you mm-hmm. because we don't see that in humanity necessarily right. all the time. Right. <laughs> one, one of the geniuses I think of Lewis is that Reapy Cheap is not. You know, you you did say in literature you can have those who are better than right. than possible or more evil than possible. But even in Reepicheep, there's not the impossibility of him. Like he still That's makes true. mistakes. That's true. And you know, yeah, as you right. see this in like the Lion, the Witch, and the Ward, or no, excuse me, Prince Caspian, where his tail gets cut off, and you know he's mm-hmm. he's he's mad about it, and 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 it makes a sort of sense. Like there's yeah. a there's a pride to him, but you see that you see that pride that's maybe not totally sanctified yet, but you get to see that. In Reepicheep, you see that he makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite pieces of that in this is what you mentioned earlier with 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 with, with the chess scene. He's he's talk, Lewis talks about him playing chess, and Lewis will will kind of with a wink say, you know, he usually wins, but when he loses to Lucy, it's because he puts his you know knight in mortal danger because that's the way he actually would yeah. do things. He would, he's always thinking of last stands and and glorious charges and things like that. And so he's not this impossible. No one can be like Reaper Cheap, but he is an exemplar. He is something better than typical, better than most sure. that we should reach for. Yeah. That we should be like. <laughs> So I have one last question for you guys, but before we get there, Ian, I actually had a question for you. Oh, you said yeah. something in, in book discussion that got me thinking. There's this great passage in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader on one of the islands, um, Lucy, with the island with the duffel puds. Yes. Lucy is reading the book of spells and she reads this story and it's the most just enrapturing story mm-hmm. she's ever read. She gets lost in it. She loves it. But then as soon as she's done reading it, she can't remember what it was about. And after I read that, I was honestly a little puzzled, but yeah. you offered me a helpful way to understand it. What, how, how do you read that passage? Every, every time I read that passage, I think of a couple different things, even from, even from scripture, you know, Ecclesiastes, he has set eternity into the hearts of men. Mm. Uh, and, and so what I think there, what I think is going on 
is that there are there is within us a desire that's not really satisfied without God, without Christ. And everyone knows this. And this is part of what he's talking about in mere Christianity with natural law. There, there, there's, there are things that we know is right and wrong. But then elsewhere, I think in like The Weight of Glory and some of his other essays, he talks about satisfaction and the, and, and the true lack of satisfaction that we as humanity, we, we all really know that there's something out there that can fill us up and satisfy us and we're missing it. Mm. And the modern world is trying to give us all these different things. It's dating, it's this, it's that. But Lewis is, I think, hitting on that 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 very natural aspect and normal aspect of the human experience. That, that, that there's a story that you know will satisfy you. That once you once you've, or, or excuse me, before you've heard it, you're looking for it. After you've heard it, I mean, that is maybe where the metaphor is difficult. Is that she hears it, but then she forgets it. But I think the way that that works out in real life for us is that we can never really get over the good news of the gospel of, of Christianity, what God offers us in Christ, that, that there are beauties to that story that transcend our natural experience that we're still yearning for. And, and it won't be fully satisfied. Again, the, the, the scriptures often talk about salvation as a future event. You will be saved because there is something that we're still waiting for. We're waiting for God's kingdom on earth to come. And I think that's part of what's going on. And I think one of the ways to defend that is that in there, you know, Aslan shows up, Aslan shows up in that scene after she, and and Lucy asks him like, well, can I hear that story again? And he says, child, I'll I'll be telling you this story. I'll, I'll tell you over and over and over again. And that sounds beautiful. You don't really know what it means yet, but then you get to the end. And at the end, there's a scene from the gospel of John, they come up and there's a lamb making dinner, making breakfast, excuse me, on the shore, which is from the gospel of John. And the lamb turns into the lion. They know it's Aslan. And Aslan has already told through Caspian uh, that that Lucy and Edmund are not coming back. But then he tells them, you you need to find out who, you know, you need to hear my story on that side. You need to find Mm -hmm. out who I am on there. And there they ask him like, well, how will we know? And he tells them again, I'll be telling you over and over again, you're going to continue to hear my story. So just the, that, that, that um, same language being used over and over again. I think that's what he's really, really picking up. That's great. So last question for you. Yeah. There's multiple islands in this voyage. Is there a particular island that you enjoy more than the others? Which is, which is your favorite island and why? Maybe, uh, would you like to start? Do you have a media one? Okay. I think I like, uh, now I can't remember the name of the island, but the <laughs> island where there's slavery and Prince Caspian has to say- Is it Dorn? Is it Dorn? Did Some, I just make that up? I want to say Deathwater, but that's not right. That's not right. No, sorry. <laughs> um, it's not on there, on the map. The map's not very helpful, <laughs> <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, what I like about that island um, is mainly what Caspian has to become and reject- in order mm. for that to be so he has to become a certain type of king um, and he has to reject a certain view of progress mm. so the 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 governor is like well we can't get rid of slavery because of all the progress we've had economically we'll just fall apart and you know we just like our we'll just go backwards in terms of progress and caspian's like well actually no what you call progress is is mm. not progress. Mm-hmm. And in order, the person who turns back soonest from this path is actually, that's when progress starts. That's right. 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 Um, yeah. and, Joseph Pierce mentions the same exact thing oh. and, and, and describes it exactly the way you are. That's hilarious. 
He's a great thinker. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just like the political th- that that vision of of what a leader is a leader who uh, doesn't accept progress at progress sake recognizes mm-hmm. that sometimes um, the path to destruction looks a lot like progress. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that was a great insight. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, I what's the island with Gumpus? Um, that is that's the same island. Is it the same? Well, so the 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 thing that strikes me about th- that is the you know the irregularities, and you have to go through all of this red tape to mm. you know. And I think that I, I'm interested in seeing um, you know Lewis. I like to collect sort of. Um, his ideas about leadership throughout all of Narnia. And so just different impediments to leadership. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. one of them that, you know, oh, this is highly irregular that we're having this meeting. Like this wasn't scheduled. How, that's did, right. this, how did this even happen? <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of um, the scene in the magician's nephew where, um, you know, uh, Jadis is in the city in London, right? And she's just, it's just going yeah. wild. And all of the experts, right, the, uh, are yeah. saying, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And Cabby is the one that acts, right? right. And so, you know, and that, again, that's an impediment to action. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm above the action. I'm the thinker here, mm-hmm. you know, and, but, and then, you know, so I think, you know, it's interesting to me to see all of um, the, I think the poor attributes mm-hmm. that Lewis, um, uh, gives to certain leaders yeah. in contrast to the attributes that he assigns or um, exalts in the kings and queens. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or Caspian, who's going on the journey. He didn't, right. he's not just sitting back, oh, I have an idea. Right. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah, there, there are two places for me. And so without your permission, I'm going to talk about both. So <laughs> one of my favorites is the Island of the Duffelpuds. And I, I like, there's one little line there. There's a couple of lines that I really like. I'll just talk about one. The one that I really like is is when Aslan shows up in the room, as I was talking uh, saying earlier, uh, you know, he becomes invisible by by Lucy's chanting of of that certain spell that makes things visible. And she goes, "Oh, I can even make you you know visible." And Aslan says, "You child, you don't think I would follow you you think I would break my own rules." Mm. You know, there's so much on that island about the the structure of things, about reality, about knowledge. How you know, one of the in 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 the book itself, there's a spell for for being able to hear what people talk about you, and that ends up hurting Lucy. But you think like, why is that spell there? Well, I think it's because in the book you have this idea that there are things that can be known that aren't that that God knows that that's not good for you to know. Mm. But there's also a, a a a living structure in reality. Like God has made um, the world with, with with structure in place and makes and makes it so that He even obeys the rules mm. that He that, that that He makes. And so there's a lot of theology there in just a great little story. Mm-hmm. But then my my second favorite my my favorite place is is on the Silver Sea. Is as they're going to the Utter East. They're mm. going to to what they don't know yet. They're not sure if it's Aslan's country. Just the way um, Lewis talks about uh, the brightness of the sun, because in this world, it seems like the world's flat. And, you know, even Caspian says, wait, you live on a round world? Like, what's that like? You know, there's just this great, great experience there. But but the sun really does truly seem to be coming up out of the world. And they're there before the glorious sun. And what you're... What, what, what you're beginning to realize is that somehow, in some way, they're able to actually 
exist here to see this sun in all of its glory. And it's because as they've been drinking some of the water, they find that the water there is sweet, that it's mm-hmm. able to be drunken, which, which fits, you know, with, with, um, both Reaper Cheap's earlier prophecy, uh, the prophecy spoken over him, but also with this idea that Lewis has everywhere that we are being made more like either something very glorious or something demonic, which he talks about in the way to glory. And so he's using this great example of being on a journey, being at the end of your journey within that journey, there is something there within the world that is making you better prepared to see that final glory, Mm -hmm. uh, which is God. And so just the beauty of thinking about that, that the longer I stay on this Christian journey, you know, by God's help, I'm being made more fit to be with him Mm -hmm. in the end. Yeah. So I I, I love that. That's really well said. And if you have not read the voyage of the Don Trader, sell your shirt. Use the proceeds, <laughs> buy a copy, and make sure you read this book. Thank you guys for this conversation. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.